Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami The uh, value of a retreat essentially lies in um, how capable we are of um, translating the insights and uh, wholesome qualities that we develop during such a time into the uh, the cauldron of our uh, out of retreat life, and um, if we can only attain peacefulness or have insight when um, we have this sort of absolutely ideal conditions that there are here at IMS, and I can assure you it it might be as good somewhere on planet Earth, but it's not going to be any better, (laughs) despite all of the... uh, minor adjustments that uh, you might think of, uh, it doesn't get much better than this. So, uh, be informed. (laughs) So, um, if if our insight is just dependent on such ideal conditions, then um, it's not really worth much. Because um, if our if our happiness um, is left behind on the zafu, then uh, we'd either have to ca- carry our zafu around stitched to the back of our trousers, <laughs> could arouse comment in our spouses and co-workers. Uh, so. This is why um, I try to make a lot of emphasis on the development of um, reflection, uh, consideration, um, and um, using more, uh, making more emphasis on the attitude that we have towards what we're experiencing, rather than a particular kind of technique or, or set of experiences that we might develop during sitting meditation or walking meditation, formal practice of, of any kind. Now certainly formal practice is extremely useful. I mean, we, we all recognize this is, is a very um, important kind of um, work and it's, it's, it's work that's best done in a very, uh, very refined conditions. Like, you know, if you want to do an operation, it's best to do it in an operating theater, you're not on the kitchen table. 
you know, or out on the street. Um, but then also, um, you know, the whole point of having an operation is so that you can go about your ordinary life. It's not so that you live in an operating theater for the rest of your days. <laughs> so, um, so the question is, how, how do we um, make that transition? And um, what, uh, what areas of our life um, do we uh, have most difficulty? difficulty with, you know, where do we create the dukkha in our world? Because uh, suffering, suffering is more of a verb than a noun. It's something that you do, it's not something that happens to you. It's not something that you meet on the street, it's, it's a thing that the mind is creating. You can look at it that way. So, in the course of a, of a retreat like this, that's why um, I find it, it very useful, rather than just trying to, to um, find a kind of concentrated, peaceful space within the mind, there's also an element of looking at our whole life, looking at our personality, looking at our conditioning, looking at the, the world that we, we live with, that we are, are um, made up of, uh, investigating the body and the mind, and coming to know it completely, uh, coming to understand how it functions, what makes it tick, what what makes us happy, what makes us unhappy. One time I was, I was teaching a retreat um, in England some years ago, and uh, there was a, a woman on the retreat who had this very uh, stressful job. She was a, a, um, uh, a kind of nursing administrator in a psychiatric hospital, and it was a, uh, she had a lot of responsibility, a lot of pressure, and um, so she, uh, she'd been meditating for about 30 years, and so she was, she was telling me that she, you know, she used to be able to, to finish work and go home. She'd go into the little shrine room that she had, sit down on a cushion, and, and uh, concentrate her mind, and her mind would go completely peaceful and quiet immediately, even after you know, a, a full day of, of dealing with... Um, she said the staff, you, working with the other staff, is far more difficult than the patients. <laughs> and the hospital administration system, or the hospital administrators were even worse. But um, she could have a really fraught day and then come back and, and uh, make her mind kind of clear and bright and peaceful. So she was kind of pretty confident about her practice and thought, you know, this is, yeah, my time has not been wasted. And uh, during this retreat, um, I'd been teaching the, um, doing a, through a lot of metta practice, and, and in particular using the uh, focusing on the breath at the at the heart center. And so, uh, anyway, was, she came into for an interview about four or five days into the retreat, and so I said, "Oh, so how's it going?" And she said, "Well, uh, I think I hate you." <laughs> I said. Raised an eyebrow and said, "Oh, really?" <laughs> and uh, she said, "Well, yes, because you know, I, I was under the impression that my meditation practice was was really very, very together." And she described, you know, how easily she she um, was able to concentrate. And she said, "Then you know, you've been teaching all this. This uh, the way you've been teaching is, um, it's brought my my attention down into this this uh, very messy and uncomfortable area down here." I like to live up here. I've got a beautiful, spacious attic. 
a brightly a brightly lit attic, and I just and I like to go there. But I but uh, what this this practice has done is brought me down into this kind of realizing that the rest of the house is in something of a shambles, and um, and I don't like it. <laughs> so she's kind of being playful, but um, it was in, an interesting comment. So in the practice that we're doing, we're not just trying to find a, a make a nice sort of a, a pleasant attic space for ourselves, but to sort our house out, to, to really look through the house and see where the junk is piled up and, and you know, where the, the, the floors need fixing and the, the windows need to be unstuck and the, the, um, the place tidied and cleaned. Uh, in a, a situation like this, um, here on a retreat, then we're we're living as a community. We're we're living in a a, um, a relationship of um, spiritual companionship, if you like companions in the holy life. This is the, the kind of um, bond that there is between us. Maybe you didn't realize this, but <laughs> while you're busy. <laughs> Mowing down various other members of the retreat with <laughs> merc- kind of various mercenaries who are on hand, <laughs> but uh, generally speaking, I think we can assume, apart from a little bloodshed here and there, that uh, that we are we have a kind of spiritual communion here, and that um, this is how we relate with each other. Many of you don't even know each other's names. Um, you know, we we are not. Uh, we're, we're functioning on a level of, of a kind of close spiritual companionship, um, and so that um, we're not having to relate to each other as people. We don't have responsibilities towards each other other than keeping the precepts and following the routine. That's uh, this is uh, the extent of the um, the kind of com- complexity of the relationship between us, if you like. But as you are very well aware, not all relationships are quite this simple, straightforward. You know, um, you actually have to talk with people. <laughs> you know, you're you're married to them, or or you work for them, or you're their parent, or they're your they're your parent, or you're a teacher, whatever. And so, um, one of the most important areas of um, of dukkha creation. And uh, one of the most important areas for us to understand is our connectedness and relationship with with other human beings, other people. Um, and so, for myself, I found that it's it's really important to to bring the qualities, the insights, and and good qualities that arise from the spiritual training that we have into the way that we relate with other people. The, these kind of bonds that are formed in our life. Because the stronger, wherever there's an emotional bond, um, there's going to be intense mind states, by the positive or negative, but generally pretty intense. Um, so it's interesting that a lot of our monastic, uh, the monastic rule, the, the Buddha established rules solely around where people got into trouble or difficulties arose. So. If you took out the, the rules about food, sex, and money, you wouldn't be left with a great deal. There's <laughs> like dozens and hundreds and hundreds of, hundreds of rules that relate to these, these areas. 
because the mind gets so hot over around food, around sex, around money. And uh, because these are powerful influences in the mind, so then there's a lot of, uh, of structure and discipline around being sensitive and alert and mindful of those areas. So contemplating um, relationship and uh, the different kinds of relationships we live in, because we all live in a, like a matrix of, of many different types of, of relationship with, with other people. Um, we're a, a child of some people, we're a sibling of other people, we're a parent of other people, we're a teacher for some people, we're a student of others, uh, we employ other people or, they are, um, or they, we are employed by them. Um, we uh, have... Um, relationships of, of partnership, uh, ex-partners, future partners, <laughs> um, the lover and the beloved. Uh, there's many, many different kinds of relationships that we, we, we form and we, we live in the middle of, we participate in. And um, so if we don't understand or, or we don't really examine those um, elements of our life and turn and establish the relationships that we have in a, in a dharmic way, then um, because of the, uh, the intensity of mind states that grow up around you know, human relationship, um, we will always be creating suffering for ourselves and, and other people. You know, we're, we're, we have, we're bound to, because that, um, these are powerful uh, our relationships are a powerful presence in our lives. I mean, I don't, I don't know anybody, I don't think I've ever met anyone for whom that wasn't the case, that um, that, that was uh, a major influence in their psychological world and contributes a lot to what one is having to work with. I mean, I have, for during this last week that we've all been here, how much of what has arisen in your mind has been to do with either... Um, friends, enemies, um, relationships, parents, your children, people that you work with. Um, you know, it's a lot, right? The, the, the litany of, of different, you know, the dramatis personae of, of, our, of our world. So it bears some attention on that. <coughs> Obviously some... Some relationships are more charged than others, or that, that, that bond is stronger. And it, can, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a bond of love, it can be a bond of hatred as well. You know, but um, uh, but the, the bonds get, are very strong. There's a, a poignant uh, passage in the, in the scriptures where um, shortly after the Buddha's enlightenment, he's returned to uh, Kapilavatu, his hometown, and this is um, maybe uh, maybe a year or so after the, not quite a year after the enlightenment. And so he's uh, invited to go back to his hometown, and he go, he returns there. And um, early on in this trip, um, his half brother Nanda was um, uh, it was his wedding day, and the Buddha was on his arms round through the town of Kapilavatu. And so Nanda's there on his procession towards the, to, to the, um, the temple to get married. And then um, as the Buddha's walking past with a, a, you know, a train of monks with him, he turns to Nanda and hands him his arms bowl and then turns back and walks on. 
So Nanda is like, yeah. <laughs> what do I do? What do I do? And so they said, just carry his bowl. He's got to go back to the monastery. You know, he's, uh, he's asked you to carry his bowl. So he says, oh, well, okay. Well, so he turns to his bride-to-be and the rest of the, the uh, entourage and says, well, you know, I'll be, I'll be back shortly. Just, just you know, <laughs> just kind of hold it for a while. And so he goes, back to the, he goes back to the monastery with the Buddha, and the Buddha's kind of plain nonchalant. And, um, and they, uh, they finally get back there, and then the Buddha starts talking to Nanda. And, um, and in the course of the conversation, he, he persuades Nanda that he doesn't really want to get married, and that he'd be far, off beca- be far better off becoming a monk instead. <laughs> so um, his intended is left like Miss Havisham at the altar. <laughs> Called Janapada Kalyani, was her name. She actually also she actually became a nun, became an arahant later on as well. But it's a different story. <laughs> but at the time, you know, the Ananda was like the next after the Buddha had gone. Nanda was was the crown prince, right? So he was due to take over the kingdom. So then he's gone too. So um, a short time after that, then the Buddha is, has been invited to the palace and he's. Um, he meets up with his, his father, King Sudodana, and um, his former wife, Princess Yashodara, and his son, Rahula, who was seven years old by this time. And so then uh, Princess Yashodara then says to Rahula, this, is, this monk is your father. Go and ask him for your inheritance. Now, Yashodara was, was um, very supportive of the Buddha, and that when, when she found out he'd left the home life, she, she put on um, uh, plain clothes and lived on the, eight, uh, on the eight precepts. She kind of took off all her ornaments, and, and that's how she lived. Um, she was a householder at that time, but she, she chose to live a renunciate life as well, out of respect for her, her, husband, her husband's aspiration. But, uh, so anyway, she said to Rahula, go and ask your father for your inheritance. And um, so Rahula kind of trots along and looks up at the Buddha who is like, you know, six foot six. <laughs> and he says, um, uh, Venerable Sir, um, I've been told to ask you for my inheritance. And so the Buddha says, yeah, sure. And then um, he, asks, he, he um, calls Sariputta, Sariputta over, his uh, chief disciple, and says, Sariputta, give Rahula the precepts of a novice. So Sariputta takes Rahula off and shaves his head and gives him a little robe and gives him the ten precepts. <clears throat> so there's a certain theme developing here. Right? Um, so then, uh, shortly after that, the King Sudodana comes to the Buddha and says, Venerable Sir, I would like to ask you a favor. And the Buddha says, Tathagatas have gone beyond favors, Gautama. He says, well, it's permissible lord and blameless. This is very unusual for a parent to be talking to a child in this way, but in, in Asian custom, the, the, when one has left home, you kind of, you enter a, a, a kind of state in society that's, that's um, more uh, elevated than, than your own parents even. So this still pertains in, in uh, Asian culture today. So anyway, the, the Buddhist says, well, please, Say what you uh, let me know what your request is, and I'll see what I um, what I'll do. 
So he said, when you left home, that was bad enough. That was painful. And then there was Nanda. That was worse. Now Rahula. This is too much. He said, love for our, uh, love for our children cuts through the skin and reaches the flesh, cuts through the flesh and reaches the bone, cuts through the bone and reaches the marrow. And having reached the marrow, it lodges there. Lord, it would be good if the parents' permission were asked before giving the going forth to, um, to those who wish for it. And the Buddha said, okay. And from that time on, that's been the case, that you have to receive your parents' permission. To, to leave home and to, to enter monastic life, particularly for novices, but also within the uh, the full ordination procedure. One of the questions that you're asked before your ordination is, uh, do you have the permission of your parents? You know, even if you're like 60 years old and your parents are in their 90s, you need still you should get their kind of their okay. I was always really struck by the the kind of um, that exchange between the, the, the Buddha and his father and uh, the, the expression that, that King Suddhodana uses you know, that, that to describe the bond between uh, you know, parent and child. Um, even though it was you know, the Buddha's own child, you know, still King Suddhodana had that kind of feeling of, of um, closeness to Rahula. And uh, actually the word Rahula means bond. My name is Bond. Just bond. <laughs> so, but also, like in the in the Metta Sutta that we do, you know that this is the, this is what the Buddha uses to characterize the ideal of loving kindness. Is that even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so um, with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So this is the, the, the kind of model, the archetype that the Buddha uses like to, that uh, encourages us to develop that kind of strength of, of a feeling towards uh, all beings. Now, uh, there are many different types or, or, or aspects of relationship, but... Um, from my, uh, one way that I found helpful to, to look at it is that they're basically in two different categories, um, which um, I would label um, relationships of separateness and relationships of wholeness. And these are just my own labels. So, um, but what they're um, what they're talking about or what they're referring to is the way that we hold. A relationship in our mind. Um, so a relationship of separateness is where we have a, a strong sense of, of self, uh, a distinct sense of me here, and then you um, you exist in my world as a, as an adjunct to my world, and that um, I am not complete in myself, and my my um, my relationship to you, my bond to you is is uh, my my connection with you makes me feel whole. And so that it's, um, 
I need you to make me feel complete, whether that's with a, from a, a parent to a child or a lover to a beloved or um, student to teacher or, or teacher to student. I mean, sometimes people have a desperate need to be teachers and they have to kind of find students so that they can be teachers for them. <laughs> this is a problem in the spiritual domain. <laughs> people say, they introduce themselves as a, as a uh, I'm a teacher, <laughs> as an identity, but then... Um, it's like then the students are just kind of androids that you, you, you gather together so that you can be a teacher for them. Similarly, um, sometimes we, we create relationships just so that we can um, feel complete. And uh, so that what happens in, in, uh, if we create a relationship of, of this kind, and this is the most common way that we have of relating with others, is that um, I am this separate entity here, and then you are that separate entity out there, and then we, we are existing as with some kind of um, contact with each other. But relationships that are based in that way will, will always be um, productive of, of dukkha, of suffering. They have to be, because they're, they're based on a, a fundamental delusion. You know, that that I am I am here separate from you and I am trying to provide something for you you provide something for me or we're connected in in uh, in some way but there's this essential isolation which is based on the on a quality or a, an impression of of isolation there's a, a uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with um, René Magritte's painting called The Lovers, as these two, two people, um, each has got a black bag over their head, and they're, they're embracing each other like this. But it's not one black bag, it's two black bags. <laughs> so each one has their, their head inside a black bag, and they're in this kind of classic embrace, kind of kissing each other. But yet each one is completely isolated within their own, their own bag. And this is the kind of um, state that we can create for ourselves, where even if we might be in close contact with someone, close to our, our partner or close to a teacher, um, close to a, a child or a parent, we still feel this kind of veneer or barrier between us. And we're always trying to work out our relationship, trying to make it right, trying to find the thing that's going to make them feel good about me or make me feel good about them. But we keep colliding with this or, or, or being obstructed by this kind of subtle walls and barricades that we create. Now, I realize these are generalizations and, and um, sweeping statements, but this is just a, a kind of outline pattern that I'm trying to describe here. Now, this is um, what, what occurs when we, we build a relationship around the personal. If you like, you could call it like a personal love. Um, and it, the, the Buddha was pretty unequivocal in, in the way he talked about this. There's um, a few passages. And I'm, I'm not trying to come across as a kind of monkish put-down of, of, uh, of relationship. Or, or that, um, but the Buddha kind of laid it down very, very clearly when uh, there's a, a couple of uh, discourses where he point he talks of this very very directly, 
one of which um, a man is distraught and, and uh, deeply upset and, and, and comes across the Buddha and the Buddha says, why are you, why are you so unhappy? You're kind of weeping and wailing and tearing your hair. And, and the man says, well, I just lost my only son. My only son just died. And so I'm going from, you know, I find myself going from place to place um, uh, calling for my son. Where is my son? Where is my son? And the Buddha said, um, uh, thus it is. Our dear, our dear ones, our, our loved ones, are the cause of sorrow, lamentation, uh, pain, grief, and despair. And he said, no, no, that's not true at all. Our, our loved ones are, are the source of happiness and joy. And the Buddha said, our loved ones are the source of <laughs> sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. And then the man says, you don't know what you're talking about. You're totally deluded. And he, he went off. And, and nearby there was some... Um, the Buddha was had been sitting meditating in a, in a cemetery, burning ground... And there were some people, some men gambling nearby. And so then the, the man met the, went up and chatted with the gamblers and, and said, um, recounted this conversation he just had with this monk. And, and they said, yeah, well, you're right, friend. Our loved ones, uh, you know, they're the source of happiness and joy in life. That's, that, that's true. The monk is, is wrong. He's, 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 uh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So then um, the, story, this, this, the story of this, this exchange you know, goes through the, the town of Savasi and eventually reaches the palace and uh, there's uh, Queen Malika and King Pasenadi then get to hear of this. And so uh, Queen Malika says, well, if the Buddha says our loved ones are the source of, of, um, of sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief and despair, then that must be the case. And, she, and then King Pasenadi, who was also a disciple of the Buddha, said, enough of this Malika. Everything that the Buddha says Whatever he says, you always say, it must be so. <laughs> you know, I'm fed up with this. <laughs> Our loved ones are the source of happiness. They're the source of joy. Everyone knows that. It's obvious. And so then Malika, being a, a wise woman, says, well, let's go and ask the Blessed One and see how he explains it. So she knew how not to get into a head-on collision <laughs> with the boss. So, so off they trot to the Buddha and... Um, and say, Venerable Sir, is it true that you said um, that born from those who are dear to us are sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief and despair? And he said, yes, this is true. I said this. And then the King Pasenadi says, how can this be so, Lord? Because um, the ones that we love, these are the source of happiness, they're the source of joy. And then the Buddha says, well, um, great king, if some... Uh, if some change, some alteration came, uh, overcame Queen Malika, and that's the kind of synonym for something nasty happening. If something nasty happened to Queen Malika, um, how would you feel? Oh, I'd be very unhappy. Oh, that would be really bad. Okay. <laughs> that would be terrible. If any change or alteration came, uh, over, overcame Queen Malika, that would be a disaster. Okay. And what about uh, Princess Vajiri? What if some change or alteration overcame her? Oh, that would be terrible. That would be most upsetting, most distressing. Okay. What about, and he kind of goes through the generals and the prime minister and, and the, the town of, of Savati and the kingdom. And so he kind of goes down a, a list of four or five, six different things. And then finally King Pasenadi says, Enough, Lord. I understand. 
Loved ones are indeed the source of sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief and despair. I was foolish, Lord, to, uh, to have um, disputed on this issue. And I suspect a smirk uh, crept across the face of Queen Malika at this point. <laughs> but, uh, there's also another incident um, which is often quoted where um, Visaka, who is the, um, the, the greatest lay disciple of the, uh, of the Buddha, a woman um, who lived in uh, Vesali? No, Savati, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah she was in Savati. And so she was, she was a, a, um, a serious mama. She had 20 children, <laughs> 10 sons and 10 daughters, and each of those 10 sons and 10 daughters had 10 sons and 10 daughters. 400 grandchildren and 84,000 great-grandchildren. So she was seriously into motherhood. <laughs> you, must, this is slight, you must understand this is slightly kind of mythologized account, but <laughs> by, all, by, uh, by any recension, she, she was a big family woman. And so one day she came to the Buddha and... Um, <clears throat> she, her, her hair and her, her clothing were, were all wet. And so the Buddha said, why have you come here in the middle of the day with your, your hair and your clothing wet in this way, uh, Visaka? And Visaka said, I just come from the funeral of one of my granddaughters. And so, you know, in the funeral oblations, and I, you know, my, my head was wetted and, uh, and, uh, and so my clothes, you know, in the process of the funeral. And um, then the Buddha says, how is it, Visaka? Um, do you, uh, do you love your grandchildren? Oh, I love them. I love them so much. And uh, she said, you know, I've got so many grandchildren already, but really I'd like to have as many grandchildren as there are people in Savati, which is like the capital of, the, of Magadha, right? So the Buddha says, oh yes. Um, Visaka, every day in the city of Savati, uh, at least ten people die. Or if not ten people, nine people. If not nine people, eight people. Um, and if not, then it goes down like seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. If not, if not two people, at least one person dies every day in Savati. If you had as many grandchildren as there are people in Savati, would you ever be without your hair and your clothing being wet <laughs> from having come from the funeral of one of your one of your grandchildren? Just, Enough, Lord, of having so many grandchildren. <laughs> I understand. The Buddha then says, if you have a hundred dear ones, you have a hundred pains. If you have 90 dear ones, you have 90 pains, and so on. 80, 60, 70, 50, 40. If you have 10 dear ones, you have 10 pains, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. If you have one dear one, you have one pain. If you have no dear ones, you have no pains. Those who, have no, those who are without dear ones, uh, are, they are painless, they are sorrowless, they are free from suffering. Now, what he's, he's talking about is, you know, on, on the one hand, he'll say that. On the other hand, you know, one is to cherish all living beings with a boundless heart. So what he's talking about with the, the conversations with, with uh, Visaka and with um, uh, King Pasenadi and Queen Malika is this, um, what I would call a, a relationship of separateness, of kind of personal love, where um, the, the sense of self is... Um, of a sense of identity here and the sense of uh, the other person is made into something solid and absolute. And as long as that's there, 
as long as the sense of I and you, whether it's I'm your, your, your partner, I'm your teacher, you're my teacher, um, you're my boss, I'm your boss, uh, whatever it might be, I'm your, I'm your parent or, you're my, uh, or I'm your child, whatever it might be, the, in, in so far as that sense of identity is solid, so will, there will, so will there be suffering created from that bond. That's how it is. Where there is personal love, there, there has to be dukkha. There was a... Um, a, uh, a very lovely uh, old couple who lived in a, a village near our monastery in Sussex in England. Um, and they'd been married for, for 60 years and had never had an argument. They were still talking to each other as well. <laughs> they were, the, uh, they were the, archi- the ultimate loving couple. And uh, Mr. and Mrs. Gilbert. And they were very friendly with us. We used to go and visit them on our arms around quite regularly. And um, she was a very sweet old thing and had terrible arthritis and eventually she died. And Mr. Gilbert was, uh, was really just devastated, heartbroken. And uh, he, they were well on in years and obviously they knew that one of them was going to die first. But I heard of a, a really interesting um, exchange that took place between him and his doctor. He went to the doctor and said, yeah, I'm doctor. I'm so miserable. I, I'm I'm just so unhappy and and uh, sad, depressed the whole time. You know, I'm missing my wife so much. Can you give me something to to make me feel better? And um, the doctor said, No. I can't give you anything. Your marriage was too good. <laughs> you know what you're experiencing is the uh, the natural sense of loss because you were so close to your wife and uh, you you were so fond of each other, that, that this grieving is something that you have to go through because it's the result of what has already gone before. I mean, they, they literally, you'd see them walking around the village hand in hand. You know, this is like in their, in their 80s. This, this really sweet old couple. And I thought it was very brave of the doctor um, and also very, very helpful for him to, to say that. That it's like, this is, this is what naturally follows from the kind of bond that you created. Um, so this has to be lived through. And it was actually very helpful to Mr. Gilbert. He kind of uh, was angry at first. <laughs> but then he, he ex- uh, respected the wisdom of it. And he saw that, yeah, it's like losing an arm and a leg. Of course, there's going to be that, that sense of loss. Because, because there was the sense of, in, it was just in proportion to the sense of belonging, of owning each other. So, uh, what we're then pointed towards is what I would call the relationships of, of wholeness, where the, the bonds that we, we create with other people, um, the connection that we have with others, is something that um, catalyzes or reflects our own innate wholeness, so that my connection with you um, as like, say, at this time, I'm in the role of teaching and, and you're in the role of, of, stu- of, of students or listening, then this is a relationship that we have. And so that um, if, uh, if I need you to, to like me and appreciate the teaching so that I will feel good and that I'm, I'm a success, then I'm creating a dependency 
Um, but if if my contact with you is something that that uh, reminds me of my own wholeness, then there's an independence there. And similarly, um, uh, you know, the way that you relate to, to me or to to um, Tan Punadamo or Sister Gloria, like if you if you are if what we say and what we manifest is like a mirror for you that, that re- reminds you or reflects back to you um, aspects of your own being that you are, uh, are not usually uh, uh, you're not usually aware of that that, we, that that catalyzes within you a recognition of your own completeness then there's a relationship there but it's um, it's not there's no um, there's no dependency. There's a, what we're recognizing is, um, or what's happening is that we're we're using that bond. That bond is helping us to awaken. So there's a bond there. There's a commitment. There's a contact. There's a, a relationship, but it's not limiting. And and uh, what it's doing, it, what we're doing is we're respecting the innate relatedness that we have as living beings with each other. That's why, why metta, why love, uh, impersonal love, universal love, is the basis of the practice because it's a bringing our hearts into attunement with that fundamental relationship that, that this being has with its, its body and its mind together with, with all life and all things. It's like creating that alignment. So... Um, it's a, it's a love which is completely unpossessive, which is selfless, which is which is liberating. Uh, there are in some spiritual traditions they actually use that um, the uh, the relationship of of uh, the beloved in a very explicit way, like in bhakti yoga and like the songs of the various different. Um, uh, teachers, the spiritual leaders um, that you, that you hear are songs of people like Kabir or Mirabai or Rumi that are, are very popular. Like Rumi is the, is the biggest selling American poet these days. It's an interesting fact. Rumi is the biggest selling poet in America, and that language of of the the beloved. Um, Losing oneself, Mira, uh, Mira has died in the love of the dark one. Or uh, another line from one of her songs is, um, um, "Blessed are they who have dived into the ocean of the nectar of His holy name." Blessed are they who have dived into the nectar of His holy name. Gives me goosebumps. <laughs> that. So that, that kind of total giving of oneself, that complete self-surrender, and using the symbolism of, of a, a relationship of love, and the, a lover and the beloved. And uh, you find that over and over again in those kind of verses and teachings. Similarly, in the, in the Bible, in the Song of Songs, you have a, um, exactly the same kind of relationship. And it's, it's interesting how when you, when you read Mirabai or Rumi or Kabir, that the the beloved is, is is usually written with a big B, and it's whether that you can't quite work out whether it's a like a physical person or whether it's a, 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 a an abstract kind of way of describing ultimate reality. 
and then you have like Mira's Mirabai's adoration of Krishna. So you know, so what is Krishna? Is that Krishna this the blue-skinned handsome god, or is Krishna the 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 substance of the universe? And it's kind of um, both and neither. You know, it's it's um, both of those aspects are there. So, um, as a spiritual path, um, and it's not just within within the, the say Theravada expression, which is you know, we use a more kind of impersonal language like metta or karuna, loving kindness, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, joy at the good fortune of others, and upeka, equanimity. These these qualities, the Brahma Viharas, um, these are describing in you know the, uh, in the, the Theravada poetry is not the biggest selling poetry in America. <laughs> it sells a bit, but you know even though the the Metta Sutra is pretty wonderful stuff, it, it's a, it's not kind of outselling Rumi just yet. Because you know the, the language of, of love and the beloved and romance is, is much more kind of attention grabbing um, than uh, Metta Karuna Mudita and Upeka. So, but I, I you know they're certainly they're both valid forms of expression, and um, you know Theravada is, is the, the kind of um, the sparrow of the of the uh, kind of the Buddhist aviary, <laughs> the kind of hum- we don't have many peacocks in the Theravada. <laughs> birds of birds of paradise and that, but uh, but sparrows are very successful. <laughs> they're like daisies; they're everywhere. You know, they they do well any place. So they, birds of paradise need very kind of special living conditions to keep to keep happy. Sparrows in any old place is all right. So, um, really looking at our, our relationships, the way we, we relate to other people, and seeing, you know, contemplating, how, how do we structure our relationships? How do we look at others? How do we see ourselves? How do we frame that in our mind? How we, we are in contact with the people that we work with, the people that um, are our children, our siblings, our cousins, our parents. Uh, you know these these very close and powerful bonds that exist within our, our world. How do we look at them? Like the other day, I mentioned them using the the, the mother meditation. You know, I would you know, just think the word mother to uh, to really get to to listen to and to know what my mind was was uh, creating around this this other you know very significant person in my life. And uh, you know, it's, it, every um, every one of us has got kind of um, particular hotspots in our in our world. Uh, you know, where we are particularly um, fond of someone, or we are there's a, a, a particular hatred or, or mixture of you know a love hate relationship with with various persons. And so. Um, you can use this kind of practice that I've been describing to to really look at how we characterize ourselves with another in relationship to another person. If we look at how we handle being a boss, how we handle being a teacher, how we handle being a student, how we handle being a child, 
how we handle being a parent. And to, to look at how solid we make ourselves, how solid we make the people around us. And that, that where, whereas a, a, like a, if we're a relationship that is based on a kind of concrete sense of self and that kind of um, separateness, it can never be worked out. Like over and over again, it's like I'm, people will come and say, oh, "I'm trying to work. I'm trying to work out this relationship with my father, or I have this really difficult relationship with my 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 child, or my my partner." And you know, we're we're working it out. Um, but it's like, and again, you know, you should just take these comments in terms of of uh, general reflections, not sort of absolute statements of fact. But my own experience is, no matter how you try and get it right. It, go, it, it gets it's wrong, there's imperfection in it. Because it has to be. Because there's no way you can get two, two sankharas to line up and stay together. <laughs> sankharas don't do that. They change. And they don't change in sympathy with each other. You know, that they, you, you can fit them together for a while, but then after a while it just doesn't fit. So what we're doing with, with our lives is often trying to get the, the, the different sankharas to fit each other. And then you know, we have a struggle at work, we have a struggle with our family, we have a struggle in the, the Buddhist group, we have a struggle in, you know, on the, the PTA. And we're kind of trying to make the pieces fit. And we, we're, you know, the kind of people who come on meditation retreats, they're generally pretty sincere, goodwill, goodwill people. I mean, you look that way to me. It's kind of, there's a lot of... Um, you know, apart from the, the uh, kind of occasional bursts of, of ill will <laughs> manifest, Gloria's glorious uh, <laughs> repertoire of, of hatred, so I was really impressed. <laughs> it's a wonderful set of vignettes of <laughs> aversion. You know, Gloria has produced these uh, cookbooks, Gloria's Glorious Muffins. So I was suggesting she could do a you know a version on a Gloria's glorious um, ill will recipes, <laughs> different brands of aversion, different mixtures you can cook up. Anyway, I digress. Um, so you know what we're trying to do, and we do we do this. With, and I, I'm speaking from definitely from personal experience. We we try with great sincerity to make it right. But no matter how hard we try to make it right, I'm trying to change myself to fit with you. I'm trying to change you to fit with me. I'm trying to change, change the situation so that everything will be right between us. Because we feel in our heart that there's, there's rightness is possible. And, and every so often we kind of click. And think, oh, great, now we've got it. And then something moves. <laughs> and it changes on us again. And so it's almost by default that... that that often things do sort of proceed and, and hang together. It's almost like when we're not trying. And uh, there's a the, 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 as a Christian monk called Brother David Steindlrast who um, he was talking about these kind of issues, and he say like the basis of of the um, the vows of poverty, uh, celibacy, and obedience. He said there's three. Conundrums, which are which you, you can look at to characterize these, which is that when we forget ourselves, 
we are most perfectly ourselves. When I forget myself, I am most completely myself, um, which is the basis of poverty. Um, when I am completely alone, I am at one with others. This is the basis of, of celibacy. And um, when you drop the question, the answer appears. This is the essence of obedience. When you let go of the question, the answer appears. Ob- obedience comes from the Latin word ob audiens, to be completely listening. So, when we forget ourselves, we are most completely ourselves. When we are completely alone, when there's that utter independence, then we are, in this extraordinary, ironic way, completely connected. <coughs> we realize the intrinsic connection that we have to others. When we don't need others to make us feel whole, or to affirm us, or to, to um, be the, the kind of brunt of our aversion. When we don't need others, then we find ourselves not only whole, but also attuned, connected, and that we realize that we were all along. So in, in reviewing, looking at the, the relationships of our, the matrix of relationships that we, we live with, we can really begin to see how we create ourselves and how we create other people. And that my experience has been that, that, that what, the way that you work out a relationship is that, in the best possible way, is that you, you stop creating the other person. And you stop creating yourself. That's the kindest thing we can do for someone, is to not create them. Because if I if I'm trying to if I'm trying to work out my relationship with you, uh, and connect with you, if I've already, you know, and kind of you can insert your own particular hottest <laughs> hottest item here, whether it's you know father, uh, partner, um, children, or uh, workmates or whatever, you know, oftentimes it's it's the boss, you know, the relationship with your boss or your department, whatever it might be. Just as we begin to listen to how much we create those individuals. So then if I'm, if I'm trying to work out my relationship with my boss, and when I go to my boss, and when we meet, I'm not meeting that person. I'm not meeting my abbot. I'm meeting the set of projections and, and, and ideas and memories that I've created. And so then... If I've already, particularly if you've already worked out what you're going to say at the next meeting, you know, well, when I see so-and-so, oh, that, I'll say such and such and such and such, that'd be really nice, they'll really like that. And you've got your script, you know, already written out. This is the kind of worst-case scenario. And you, you're sure, okay, this is really going to work. And then it's like you're on Act 1 and they're on Act 3. You know? <laughs> so you start coming, uh, you know, coming across to, to talking to your image of them, and meanwhile, they're talking to their image of you. So you've got a kind of two-way traffic of uh, these, these two monologues going on. You ever had that experience? <laughs> and it's like, on, from the outside, it looks like there's a conversation happening, but it's like, it's not at all. There's, there's no kind of meeting occurring uh, whatsoever. There's this two, 
two monologues happening where I'm, I'm busy explaining myself to, you, to my projections and you're busy explaining yourself to your projections. And, and uh, the conversation flows according to who can get their bit in next. You know, someone pauses for a breath and then in you go and you continue your rap. This is all horribly familiar, isn't it? <laughs> and this is not because I'm a mind reader, I assure you. This is just because this is the way we are as, as human beings. And so the way that the, the, the kindest thing we can do for another person is to not create them. I mean, we witness the habits that we have of saying, you know, she's like this and he's like that and, and, and I want to be like this and I don't want to be like that. And, and to see that, uh, that tendency and to, to consciously not follow it, not, not give credence to that, not empower that. So then, when we meet that other person, um, when we have the contact with them, then we're actually there for them. And uh, even, uh, and so that when, when, they, when, we, uh, when we converse, when we meet, then there is um, a reception of what they are, a recognition of what they are, and not just your ideas about them, but you're, you're like meeting the whole being. Similarly, if, if even just you were doing that, and then the other person starts creating you know, projections about you, and is, is talking to, to, um, to, to their own image of you, it's like because you're not playing the same game, then you become like a mirror, for them, and their own projections bounce back, because you're not you're not kind of functioning in the same way. You're not playing the same game, and this is a, a most alarming feeling. If you ever had like, when you're you're upset with someone, and you kind of you get aggressive towards them, and they're not threatened, they're not defensive, they just kind of smile at you and think, "Oh, you're having a bad day, aren't you?" <laughs> it's like suddenly your your aggression just bounces straight back in your face, and you feel an idiot. Oh, you know, what am I doing? They're not, pl- they're not buying into the same scenario. So this is a gift that we can offer to other people. By, by not creating them, by not creating a fixed idea of what they are, or how they should be, or what you think of them, how you want them to be, then um, that disempowers their, their um, image-making habits towards you. And then there's a possibility of actual communication. And in that letting go of each other, letting go of yourself, then you get communication. There's, communi- there's communion. And oftentimes on a retreat, many people on retreats say, you know, you feel so together with the people on the retreat. And, uh, you know, you don't know any, many people's names. But, you know, just, we've been together for a week and there's a kind of, there's a fellowship, isn't there? You know, there's a, a sense of a bond between us, and you know, we hardly know each other's names. But that contact is there because we've been meeting in a situation of letting go of each other, of not dwelling upon personalities or names or occupation or whether we're charming or irritating or or um, what our life history is. We don't know each other's stories, so we can all the more easily be with the totality of each other. And that this is why it's, it's so difficult outside of a retreat where you, you actually have to perform as a person. Like a, the word person comes from the Latin persona, which means a mask. Like in, in the Greek theater, the actors would, wear a, would have a mask they would carry. 
That's persona means the, the, that which the sound goes through. Sona, the sound, per, through, persona. So a person is intrinsically a mask. So we have to put on these masks to be, you know, the, the teacher, the doctor, the mother, the child, the partner, you know, the wife, the husband. Um, and so being able to, to pick up the mask and play the part and do the part with all sincerity to live the part, but then to know this is just a part. This is a great art form. This is, takes tremendous skill for us to do. And so, to, u- to be consciously using the meditation practice and uh, ways of reflecting to, uh, to facilitate that process so that we can, we can be these different people. When we need to be the, the, the confident leader, we can do that. When we need to be the kind of yielding mouse, we can do that. When we need to be the, the, the cuddly friend, we can do that. When we need to be the, um, you know, the, the calm, sober companion, we can do that. And that the more um, the heart is developed in this way, then we automatically adapt to different situations. It's not like you have to kind of go through the filing cabinet and say, oh, should I be the kind of calm, sober one here, or should I be jovial? You know, what's the right thing? You know... It's not. It's, it doesn't work that way. Or if you know, if you try and work it that way, it doesn't <laughs> doesn't jive. So, seeing how when we are mindful and aware and attuned to situations, then what is needed for that particular situation, the people that you're with, will be elicited. When you need to be the, the faithful child, you'll do that. When you need to be the 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 leader that'll come forth, and it's without any kind of e- uh, ego attached to it. When we, when we are stuck in particular roles for ourselves, or we are sticking other people in particular roles, then um, we, can't, we, we can't function so freely. There's intrinsically dukkha being created. As we um, use this kind of practice, really developing that sense of knowing identities arising, seeing how the mind creates the other person, and realizing, well, that's not it. And learning how to, to not create another person, just let them be what they are. This is the, the greatest kindness, the greatest blessing we can, we can bring into the world. And you see amazing transformations happening in yourself and also in the people around you. you know, when we stop... Um, being fixated on a particular way that we think we've got to be or what people want us to be, trying to be what we think others want us to be. It's, extra- it's amazing how often when we just let that go, when we let that, that kind of compulsiveness go, then everyone around us is relieved. Like, Whoa. <laughs> Thank goodness, at last, she's, she's stopped being the... The, the perfectly charming, positive, intelligent pain in the neck <laughs> that, we, that we're so familiar with. She actually can show some flaws or be ordinary. don't have to be so kind of uh, fixed.
So the the last thing on this I would like to emphasize is that we are, and I've said this in a few of the interviews, but I, I want to kind of get it really clear, one of the main things that we're here to learn to do is how to fail perfectly. We, we, this is, this cult, our culture is, is obsessively averse to failure. We want success. Personal success is, is enormously uh, highly praised in this culture. And failure is bad and it's wrong. But if we can't fail, if we can't kind of get it wrong and miss our shot, and then start again with a good heart, then we're, we're, we're really missing out on a lot in life. We're, we're creating tremendous difficulty for ourselves. Because, you know, I, I can say all these things and, and describe this kind of process to you, and I'm describing it, you know, I'm as much sort of saying it to remind myself. <laughs> but the fact is that we're going to fail. We're gonna, what's going to happen is that we're going to form I- concrete ideas about the people around us, and we're going to create solid identities for ourselves, and we're going to see ourselves kind of messing up and, and experiencing that kind of barrier, the, the, uh, the Magritte effect. And then, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll see the, the painfulness of that. But just to reiterate, 70 or 80% of the practice is knowing that you should let go and not being able to. You know, we, we make the effort, we fail, but we try again. So that it's not as though having said this that then you should, um, you know, you're going to expect to be able to, to transform the, you know, all your relationships in, out of an act of will like that. We can, it's impossible. It's like learning a language. You can't just do it in an evening. But we fail and we see ourselves failing. We say, aha, that was getting it wrong. I blew it. Okay? I know that I blew it. Right. Try and remember. Try and learn the lesson. So then our failures, like, like ex- scientific experiments, you know, a failed experiment can teach you as much as a, a successful one. So just, we, we, we see the pattern happening. We fail. We lose it. We try again. So that we're, we're not looking at what we call kind of failure as a disaster. It's just intrinsic in the process of learning. If you want to learn a language, you're going to hit a lot of you're going to get a lot of things wrong. Like, Buzz is wonderful. Brahma Chaloka. That's a unique rendition. <laughs> so, you know, it takes a while to get all the syllables in the right order. You know, it's not easy to do. But it's like, it's wonderful that, you know, we make the effort, we try, and we do it again. And we do it again. And by mistake, making mistakes, and by seeing that, by seeing that, and acknowledging that mistake, that mistake, and this, that, that's how we grow. There's this wonderful expression that you get over and over again in the, in the teachings that, where the Buddha says, um, uh, it, is through recogn- it is through recognizing our, uh, acknowledging our fault as such and endeavoring to do better in the future that there is growth in the discipline of the noble ones. It is through recognizing our fault and endeavouring to do better, that there is growth in the discipline of the noble ones. That's a wonderful teaching. So, it's seeing that, applying that, being ready to fail, and realizing that nothing. When we fail, nothing is lost. 
It's only just a kind of a bitter taste. But that's all. You know, it's just, if we, if we can't, if we, if we look at failure as something terrible and bad and wrong, we'll miss the point. But a failure is just um, showing us more clearly what's the right way. So we acknowledge that. And then it becomes precious to us. Every lost temper, you know, can teach us. Every time we, we lose it, we get carried away ranting about our, our, our father or our children or our boss. We see it, it teaches us. And it's just that much easier to not repeat the habit. And slowly the heart evolves, blossoms, and grows from this. So, I will offer these thoughts for you this evening. Please take what's useful, leave the rest. Anyone? So we can finish with the Brahma Viharas on that note, uh, which is page 38. Annamayam chaturapamanya obhasanam karomase Chetasa ekam disam paritava viarati tata dutiyang data tatiyang data chatutang itiyo dhammado tiriya sabati sabatataya sabhavan Lokang meta sahangate na cheta sa vipole na mahagate apamane na aware na abaya paje na paritava viaradi Aruna sahangate na chetasa ekang disang paritava viarati tata dutiyang tata tatiyang chatutang itiyo dhammado dhiriya sabati sabatataya sabhavanda Lokang karuna sangate na chetasa vipole na mahagate na apamane avere na amaya paje na paritava viarati mudita sangate na chetasa 
Ekandisangvaritavaviaratitatadutiyatatatatiyangdatachatutangitiyutamadodhiryangsabhatisambhatatayasabhavandalokangmuditasahagate Chetasavipolinamahagate Nisangvaritava viharati tata dutiyang data tatiyang data jatutang ittiyo dhammado tiriyang sabati saba tatayasabhavanda lokang upekasahagate na chetasa Vipalena mahagatena apamanena averena abhaya pajena paritava viharati te.